0: Welcome everyone back to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24/7 Sports Network,
1: and I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com, the USC site on the 24/7 Sports Network, and together we make the podcast (laughs) of champions, talking all things Pac-12 football, not basketball, just football, maybe a little bit every once in a while, but we do love to hear from you. We got a great show today. We're going to talk some recruiting since signing day is coming up in a couple of weeks. But if you want to email us any kind of questions. I know it's been a little while since we did a show. I was in Hawaii last week with with our guest today, Brandon Huffman, but Pac-12 Podcast at gmail.com is the email address. If you want to tweet us at Pac-12 Podcast, our website, of course, is pac12podcast.com, all our old episodes. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail or send us a text, you can do that by texting or calling 424-532-0678. As I mentioned, very excited for our guest, David. I, you know, the two of us were in Hawaii last week. I don't know where you were in Atlanta, like, freezing, but uh, Brandon Huffman from 24-7 Sports, national recruiting analyst. Hi,
0: guys. National recruiting editor. editor? I'm yeah, a, yes, yes, and I know this because I actually looked up Brandon's title because I can never get it right, ever.
1: What do you consider so national- yourself? What do you yeah. consider yeah. yourself, Probably Brandon? With everyone. Okay.
2: I, I Officially the national recruiting editor, but – I'm kind of like a jack of all trades. I do very little of everything. <laughs> uh,
1: well, we tried to get Brandon on in Hawaii. Uh, we and and Brandon had a great idea. Instead of doing it in like a quiet hotel room with some decent Wi-Fi, he said, "Why don't we do it <laughs> at a brewery?" That like that makes a lot of sense. But I didn't really have the great equipment for us to be hooked up to one computer and two microphones and headphones anyway. So it would have been tough. But uh, we just decided to drink instead of doing our show. So sorry we didn't get you one last week. It,
0: it was truly a beautifully laid plan because not only did you try to record it from a bar with both of you <laughs> yelling over, like, I don't know, it sounded like <laughs> the Eagles in the background. You were trying to have me record it, which is like, come on. Like, that's we just re- disaster upon disaster upon disaster. <laughs> I think it was Jimmy Buffett because
2: literally the restaurant slash bar was right next to Cheeseburger in Waikiki.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. It was pretty good though. We ended up having uh, some beers, you know, talking fondly about David Woods, and uh, so sorry we didn't do a show. We, you know, that was that was the plan. A few technical difficulties, and uh, but we're we're back, and uh, we missed you there, David. It would have been fun to have you there.
0: Yeah, yeah, it would have been fun to be there instead of you know freezing my entire soul away <laughs> here in Atlanta. But alas, we all sold on. So we we've got a lot to talk about today, huh?
1: Yeah. Um, so the plan is we're going to go over PAC 12 North recruiting. We're going to talk about each team in the PAC 12 North and have Brandon, uh, you know, talk about the classes. So obviously, you know, traditional signing day is coming up. What do you want to call it? Uh, February 6th, but most of the classes are already put in place. So we'll talk about where they are in the rankings and all that. And then maybe some people that could be added, uh, on the final signing day, um, David, do you want do you want Brandon to give a little bit of a, a Pac-12 recap of the Polynesian Bowl first, or what, what would you like to do?
0: I I think we go team by team, and then as we go, if there's anything from this class or somebody who's a prospect prospect from the Poly Bowl that we can then talk about as we go team by team, I think that might make the most sense.
1: Okay, that sounds. Does like- that make
0: sense to everybody? Whatever you guys want me to do.
1: Yeah, Brandon. So he, he just. He he's a the- moldable piece of clay <laughs> that's
0: that's brandon huffman that's how i describe him to people go- i say oh. brandon huffman he's a piece of clay
1: yeah he goes with the flow man that's what uh
0: i'm a four-letter word i'm a
2: piece of a four-letter word dude. You're right. <laughs> there you go exactly
1: um so we'll look at the classes we're going to go in reverse order of where that where they are currently ranked and if you don't know 24 7 sports just did a re-ranking i think uh, is this the final one brandon the final ranking yeah Okay. Final
2: talk two four seven for twenty nineteen. The class is the book is closed at least for guys getting into the two four seven. There still might be some guys that are three stars that could move up to four in the in the coming weeks, but not make that top two four seven. But we are quickly getting to book closing time on this class entirely.
1: Okay, so we'll we'll go reverse order um, of where the classes are ranked uh, just within the Pac twelve, and then Brandon can kind of give you an overview of. You know, dressing needs and who they got, best players, things like that. Who you know, and who could be left uh, till signing day, and then, and like David said, any kind of Polynesian bowl. Since we were just there last week, and we got to see a lot of these prospects, uh, he can talk about that as well. So we're going to start off with the uh, number twelve ranked team in the Pac-12. We have Oregon State Beavers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Coming in at number 12, number 68 nationally, this is a recruiting class with recruits in it. Um, (laughs) There are 17 of them right now. Um, So, Brandon, last year, I think Oregon State finished in the rankings, it looks like 69th. So, this year, they're 68th. So, that's improvement, and the class isn't done. Of course, a lot of other teams nationally, their classes aren't done. What are the prospects of this class improving drastically in the next week or so?
2: Well, it, it could add a couple of guys that are you know solid three star types. Uh, one of them being Paul Matavaio Paoli from the Bay Area. He's taking an official visit this weekend to Oregon State, Baylor, Hawaii, and Fresno State. Kind of round out his top four right now. Uh, but he is excited about this Oregon State visit. Um, if they impress him on the trip, there's a good chance they could get him. There's a large poly community at Oregon State that I think would, would really have an impact on his decision.
1: Yeah. They also
2: are planning a visit in Thomas Co. out of Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, he doesn't have any offers yet. But he's the number one player in Alaska, kind of overlooked because he's up there in Anchorage. Uh, but you watch his film and he's just a monster. did really well at the Polynesian All-Star Game a couple of weeks ago in Southern California. So <clears throat> he is set to take an official visit, I believe, next weekend with the potential to get the offer from the Beavers on that trip. So they could close with those two guys. That gives them a pretty good close in terms of who's left, but so much of this class is riding on the transfers that they got in more, I think, than any of the players they signed in the 2019 cycle.
1: The uh, so the Beavers, you know, when we look at the Pac-12 rankings, uh, you know, we do our power rankings. They've always, you know, pretty much been down the bottom. Um, are there? Do you feel like there's, you know, th- there's potential here that they can move up with some of the players that they add, and like you said, maybe some transfers or anything like that
2: i mean there's the potential to but i also think utah is going to close stronger uh there's about four or five guys that utah could be closing with that i think will keep them in front washington state there's a couple guys that i think they end up closing with that probably keeps them ahead um and i don't think oregon state's going to get enough juice to pass arizona so they probably stay in that 12th spot but I think the class looks significantly better after the February signing period than it did in December. And again, you know, with I think four former All-American level or four star type transfers that came in, they really kind of put their their weight into those second year college guys that are transferring, just looking for a fresh start. And, you know, that. I think contributes to the size of this class. And those are the guys that are going to be more the impact players than the true high school guys that they, you know, got commitments from where that have already signed
0: with, um, two, four, seven, I think is in the process or maybe has just, uh, they're doing their ranking of the, the transfer portal. How, have you had a hand in that at all? I have just, been, you know,
2: we try to get access to it. I mean, it's, Believe me, I've tried from various sources to get access to said portal, or at least find if names are in it. And everybody all of a sudden plays dumb and goes silent, which I, I get. <laughs> when you have the NCAA involved, you don't want to get you know too nefarious. But uh, because there's just enough publicity now about said portal, and with guys tweeting about tweeting about it, beat writers getting information 24 seven has now built a portal database that is pretty well matching what I believe the NCA portal looks like. We did get a couple of emails today um, from some kids that are at FBS programs that have left that have entered the portal and they're not listed. And so their parents are you know, making sure that they get listed because they think that the 24-7 one is the official one. Um, but you know, I, I think it's showing that with a list of names that are at the ready plus all their recruiting information from you know, in the past, that's going to be a pretty popular stop now that the portal is becoming such a vital part of the recruiting process now.
0: And you were talking about Oregon State's um, transfers. Can you go through those guys that you keep mentioning and, and what you think about them as as uh, potential impact guys?
2: Yeah, so some of the main ones that they've got coming in, Tristan Jebia, he was a former four-star quarterback out of Calabasas High School. Went to Nebraska in the 2000, I believe it was the 2017 class uh, with the Huskers. Played for Mike Riley for one year. Redshirted that season and then after it became clearly obvious that when Scott Frost took over, that Trist, or, uh, that uh, Taylor Martinez, not Taylor Martinez, that was the old quarterback in Nebraska. Uh, Adrian Martinez? Adrian Martinez, there you go, um, who can actually throw the ball. Uh, <laughs> he became the quarterback. Uh, it became obvious that Tristan Jebby didn't factor into Scott Frost's plans, so he left, went back to Oregon State. At that time, I think Mike Riley was an, was an analyst because he was getting ready to coach uh, the AAF team, I believe, down in San Antonio. But there was also a previous relationship with Jonathan Smith because Jonathan Smith had recruited him. Pretty heavily at Washington. Almost got a commitment from him at Washington, but Chris Peterson told him to hold off, and they ended up taking Jake Hainer in that class because uh, <clears throat> Jebbia wanted to commit early, but that relationship does go back there. So between Riley and Smith, Oregon State may have found their their quarterback with Jebbia because of that relationship. So then you also got Tajon Lindsey, who another another kid that signed with Nebraska, um, kind of the off-traveled Tajon Lindsey, started out in San Diego, with at Bishop Gorman was at Cronus Centennial, was back at Bishop Gorman, and then played his senior year uh, with Bishop Gorman, went to Nebraska, was originally a commitment to Ohio State, but signed with Nebraska, played there as a true freshman, and then he left in the offseason. He's also back at Oregon State. Uh, Again, the Riley Jebbia factor was at play there. Um, And then you also had Addison Guns, who was a commit in the 2017 class and signed with Oklahoma, was there for a year. He, too, came back. I mean, there's one other uh, one other transfer in there. I don't know. If, I don't remember if he's a West Coast kid, but it was another guy that transferred from a Power Five program who also uh, headed west at Oregon State. So you're throwing a four-star quarterback, a four-star receiver who is an All-American, a four-star linebacker who is an All-American. Um, you know, those are guys that if they were two years younger and coming out of high school would have been crown jewels in this Oregon State class. So because they're transfers and had to sit out the season, but then we'll be ready to play in 2019. Oregon state's essentially counting them as key parts of this class.
1: So since the early signing period, Oregon state picked up uh, a couple of commits, uh, James Rawls is a strong side defensive end from Fullerton down here in Southern California. And then, uh, Jacob for or something like that. Yeah. Uh, from he's from North Bend, Oregon. He's an offensive lineman, offensive guard. Uh, what do you? Are there going to be a few more? Do you think for signing day, or do you think they'll just sign, Oregon State just signs those two guys and and that'll well, complete the class?
2: I, I think a lot is going to pan. I don't know if they signed both Matavol Poilier, uh, and then Thomas Sio. I think one could be contingent on the other, but if they could sign both, that adds two more offensive linemen to the mix. In the case of uh, of Co, he, he they're recruiting him as an offensive guard, but he can play defensive tackle. Um, But they're recruiting both as offensive linemen. So that can kind of give them a little bit more depth on the offensive line because right now their class legitimately has one offensive lineman out of high school ranks and then one from the Juco ranks. And you'd like to, if possible, when, when kind of rebuilding to get some younger guys there that you can develop that you don't have to rush in right away, but at least give you some depth. So that could bode well for getting both of those guys that they need some younger offensive linemen. The fact that they've only signed two line, or or actually only signed one lineman in this class and they have a commitment from another that kind of makes it imperative that they get commitments from Montevideo Polo. And then if they can pivot to CO uh, as an offer guy afterwards.
1: All right. Uh, You want to move on, David? Or is there any more? Let's do it.
0: Okay. Let's move on.
1: So uh, number 10 uh, in the, Pac 12, as far as ranked in the Pac 12 recruiting classes to this point, we have Washington State Cougars.
0: All right. So Wazoo is uh, ranked 10th, as Ryan said, in the Pac 12, 58th nationally. Last year they finished out 45th. So probably tracking for something similar, assuming they land some more commits right now. Uh, 18 uh, signed NLIs, uh, one hard commit from Hunter Hill, offensive tackle. you know, I think Ryan and I have talked about this quite a bit. We both really respect uh, Mike Leach's evaluation skills, particularly when it comes to quarterbacks and wide receivers. Um, how does that look in this class? It looks like they've got uh, Gunnar Cruz at quarterback, and then uh, uh, an assortment of receivers. But how do you like their uh, their skill talent on offense?
2: Yeah, I, I like Gunnar Cruz a lot. We saw him last week at the Polynesian Bowl. Uh, he was already enrolled in school, but got a waiver so that he could leave school for a week to go play in Hawaii. And I, I think he's a guy that's going to have a chance to compete with Cam and Cooper down the line. Now, this class could end up growing by one at quarterback, and that's from a grad transfer. Gage uh who's at, who's at Eastern Washington, uh, is looking like he's going to be going the Vernon Adams route after leading Eastern to the national championship game or being a part of a team that, made it to the national championship game. Uh, it looks like he's going to be transferring. And right now, the two schools that he's looking at the most are Washington State and Utah. Um, the interesting thing there is Utah does have a starting quarterback, and they actually have two starting quarterbacks returning, whereas Washington State doesn't have a quarterback, and he's obviously familiar or, – or, or, I'm sorry, a starting quarterback. Um, but you know, he's a guy that when he's been healthy, he's been pretty darn good. But there's been times where he – has had to sit out because of injuries. So he decided to leave Eastern and now could end up at Washington State. And so that could solve their quarterback issue for 2019. Uh, They've got Connor Neville already. They've got Cameron Cooper in the 17 and 18 class, respectively, and now Gunnar Cruz. So it it sounds like Mike Leach isn't quite ready to turn it over to the young guys yet, which is why they're toying with the prospect of a grad transfer. Receiver-wise, they've got kind of an eclectic mix. You know, you got your big physical guy in Donovan Olley out of Texas. You've got more of your, your slot-type guy in Billy Popsisle, uh from Arvada, Col- uh, Colorado. Uh, then you got some guys like Javensy Basil, who could be more of a slot guy. He could be a, he's an all-purpose back, stretch the field, use him on the backfield, use him to stretch the field. He can even play on the defensive side of the ball but kind of a, an interesting mix of, of receivers that they have there. And then there's a couple of offensive linemen that they too are looking at to potentially add down the line. So their class probably won't grow substantially between now and February 6th, but they could add a couple plus the grad transfer.
1: Um, when you look at what Washington state was able to do last year, uh, you know, just taking the, the PAC 12 by storm. A lot of people didn't feel they would be very good at all. Gardner Minshew was amazing. You know, no five star signees yet, none, and there's just one commitment that that you know, not a four star either. Were you expecting like a, a little bit of a bump? I know that's not you're not seeing Washington State get a bunch of four and five star guys all the time, but that kind of season, did you feel like there would be some sort of recruiting bump? And are you surprised there there really wasn't one yet?
2: No, I, I think you really see the bump a lot the next year. Um, you know, when with the way recruiting has accelerated and with the the way it's been with official business in the spring now guys getting offers at a much earlier age you're now seeing guys get a, uh, a an opportunity to make those decisions much earlier and so if you have a good season by then a good chunk of your class is already committed they've already made a decision well before the season even started but it's the junior class the next class where you may see that bump uh, much more likely and where the Washington state offer may carry a little bit more weight with the 2020 guys. Um, they've also lost an assistant coach, Ken Wilson just this week from Washington state. He's going to Oregon, another coach joining the Oregon staff from Washington state. And he was a good recruiter too there. So, you know, you, you may not see that bump in 2019. You're more likely to see, it next year, um, but I think the more stability that Mike Leach gets on his staff, you know, there's been a lot of staff turnover there the last couple of years. I think that too contributes to maybe the lack of a bump at this point.
0: Um, looking at uh, that departure, does that is that going to impact anybody who's already committed? Um, like, is there anybody that he had committed that might look at I don't know, following him? Is that even in the cards, given? And we'll get to Oregon in a little bit, but given the way their class is shaping up right now. I don't
2: think so. I, I think it probably hurt Oregon more by losing Court Dennison with uncommitted guys than it did helping him by getting Ken Wilson. Because the early signing period with some of these guys signing in December, they're kind of screwed. As you know, the NCAA likes to screw the players a lot. So <laughs> they don't give them a lot of wiggle room. And with it not being a head coach that's leaving, it being an assistant coach, I would say they're probably less likely to have a case to get out
1: uh, they're in a at this point. What uh, what is there some more upside here with Washington State? Do you feel like they they still have uh, Hunter Hill committed who he committed before the signing period, didn't sign. Um, but anyone else you think that that Washington State can add here in the last couple of weeks before national sign Day or any big names that they might be in on at this point?
2: I don't know if there's any big names. I, I think one to watch is offensive lineman, three-star offensive lineman, Nico Pahoho, uh from St. Francis High School up in the Bay Area. Uh, he is kind of a later bloomer. I mean, he's been a guy that's been started for a couple years on a team that won a state championship last year. He had two teammates last year that signed or this year and last year that signed with Pac-12 schools. So, you know, he's had a program that people know, but it wasn't really until the last week that he's seen his recruitment take off. Colorado offered him on Monday. Uh, on Tuesday, Fresno State offered him on Monday, Washington states having an in-home visit with him this week and could potentially bring him in for an official and potentially offer him there. That could give them an opportunity to get him. So I think that that would probably be you know, the guy that they most likely have a chance with out of the high school ranks um, because the majority of the guys that they're looking at at this point, they've moved on to 2020. And then you also have the potential of the grad transfer.
1: Cool. Um, there, cool. Were, there was another, uh, I, I am blanking on his, uh, uh, name, the offense uh, the defensive lineman, um, Dejon Benton, who was a three-star guy that like USC kind of stole at the end. Is it anyone to ever re- kind of replace him?
2: No, because he, decommitted so late before, the, uh, so late with early signing period being the evening or the day, I guess, he he decommitted that morning, told Washington State that morning he wouldn't be signing. Now, they did have a little bit of advanced knowledge because he told them he wasn't planning to sign until February. Uh, but I don't think they expected him to flip, especially to another Pac-12 program, that quickly. Um, so they kind of did have a, a heads up, but they didn't replenish at that position on the defensive line so that you know that could be something they're maybe looking at the JUCO ranks or they could be playing the grad transfer route as well i think with with grad transfers working successfully for them the slash with Gardner Minshew you could see them maybe go to that well for an impact defensive
0: tackle actually, I actually have another one okay. uh Gage, Gage Cabrud, the uh the Eastern Washington transfer now he's interesting i'm looking at him he's six, two buck 95 and he's also a little bit of a dual threat um is is targeting him maybe a reflection of the fact that Leach finally saw what he can do with a... And Gardner Minshew isn't by any means a dual threat, but with a little bit more of a mobile quarterback, is that... Could this maybe be a sign that he's, you know, maybe seeing if he can explore that even a little bit more heavily?
2: Yeah, I think it gives him a guy that he can roll out a little bit more and you know, isn't more, as much of a statue in the pocket as, say, Luke Falk was, right. or as uh, the, the kid, uh, I'm blanking on, from Spokane who started before Luke Fall. Connor, Connor Halliday. Halliday. Yeah, you know, who neither of those guys were going to be confused with, you know, the the Brett Hundley, Sam Darnolds of the world. Uh, but, you know, with, with in the case of Gabriel, there's still the case he's got to get his sixth year. Now, he's had injuries, kind of ravaged his career at times at Eastern. So the, the big key for him is he's got to get the approval of the sixth year from the NCAA in order to play that grad transfer year. Um, and, you know, while well, I mentioned that they have Connor Neville and, and they have, um, Cameron and Cooper and then obviously they've got Gunnar Cruz coming in they do have some other quarterbacks on the roster uh, in Trey Tinsley and Anthony Gordon who they still you know obviously when you're looking at the grad transfer route in consecutive years that's usually a sign that you're not as confident in your upperclassmen and your, young, uh, your underclassmen aren't quite ready yet so you know I would imagine that if he comes in that that hurts their depth for the older guys, but, you know, keeps it more of a young group. So it, it, it could be that if they do bring a in that it's him or bust this year.
1: Um, all right, we're going to move on, uh, to our next team. Now this is, you know, the Pac-12 North has been the dominant side of the, you know, the two divisions, only two teams for the Pac-12 North in the bottom half of the recruiting rankings, the rest, the other four are all in the top half. So we have at number six, we have California
0: golden bears. <laughs> All right, so Cal uh, currently sixth in the Pac 12, number one in your hearts. Uh, looking at you, Ryan Gorsey. Uh, number 41 <laughs> nationally. Uh, last year they were 42nd. So right in line with what they did last year. Um, looking at this class, um, obviously it looks like it's nearly full, if not completely full, at 24 signed NLIs right now. Um, what is there, first, any prospect for growth here? And second, Um, Who are your standouts in this class?
2: You know, there's an outside chance they could add one guy, maybe two guys. I would think it would have to be an absolute miracle at the hand of God for them to get Henry Toto, but he hasn't completely ruled them out. Uh, He's the four-star linebacker out of De La Salle. Um, As as well as Isaiah Foskey, who's still got Cal in his top five, though it looks like he's going to Notre Dame. Uh, But I think that they're pretty much done with this class. I love this class. It it may not be ranked as high in the composite, but they've got two guys in it that we actually have as four stars on 24-7 ourselves in our rankings, and then they're composite threes because they probably just haven't been seen by anybody because they don't play in the Trinity League or they don't play west of the Mississippi. Uh, But Brett Johnson, who's a defensive tackle, he's a state champion wrestler, uh, Arizona kid who committed early to Cal and Arizona State and Arizona were trying like mad to flip him down the stretch but he stayed with Cal and then kid that I absolutely love out of the Seattle area Oren Patu plays at Rainier Beach High School. A lot of connections to the Cal staff. His dad Saul played at Oregon with Justin Wilcox and Peter Sermon and those two did a great job recruiting him. UCLA actually brought him in for kind of a stealth official visit in December because his dad's coach at Oregon was Don Pelham, who was recruiting him in UCLA. But I think the the family relationship with, with Sermon and Wilcox, Cal really prioritizing him, uh, played a big role in him sticking with the bears. He's our number two player in the state of Washington in the 24, seven rankings. Loved him at the Polynesian bowl. He's about six, four, 200 pounds with the room to get up to about 225, 230. You know, and the last time that Washington had a player, a uh, defensive end pass rusher that, you know, s- schools didn't recruit as hard as they could was Evan Weaver, who's turned out to be a star for Cal. We uh,
1: we talk about the uh, what Justin Wilcox has done as far as putting together a staff. Um, seems like a lot of energetic guys on the recruiting trail. How, how would you rate how they the, the staff recruits?
2: I think they do a fantastic job of the evaluation. I don't think that you're going to see Cal have a lot of attrition because they're they're kind of meticulous in how they recruit. They're they're not going to throw a ton of offers out like other schools in the Pac-12 are going to be. They're not going to be as stingy with their offers as other Pac-12 schools might be. So there, there's kind of a healthy balance that they have there of going after guys that you know they really like, they really identify that, obviously academically have the chops to get into Cal. I think that's one thing that that at times hurts Sonny Dykes is there was a little bit more of academic requirements at Cal after the Jeff Tedford era, but most of Dykes' relationships were in the Southwest, and in Louisiana, and in Texas, whereas Justin Wilcox and the majority of his staff have been guys that have coached among most of the West Coast schools, the Pac-12 schools, some were former head coaches, in the Mountain West, so there's a lot of more connections. So you can find and identify those kids that academically have what it takes to get into Cal. So I think they do a really good job of identifying um, and they've done a good job in Arizona, which, you know, you don't necessarily think Cal is going to do a great job in Arizona, but if they can just continue to improve their recruiting in Northern California alone in Sacramento to the Bay, I, I think Cal could be a top 25 program each year because the growth in talent and the high level of talent in that Bay area and kids that grew up watching Marshawn Lynch and Aaron Rodgers, you know Cal eventually is going to keep those kids home but I think it's going to take a couple more years like this year of winning games that are key beating the USC's on the road beating Washington going to a bowl game maybe scoring more points in the bowl game than you did have interceptions uh but you know not just getting to those bowl games but start to win and just to continue to show that Justin Wilcox has that program on the ascension
0: um with with Cal I think the big storyline from this past year was um uh, not being able to find anyone competent to play quarterback, uh, <laughs> or at least to not throw the ball as often to the other team as they did to their own team, um, which it didn't seem like was infecting Chase Garbers as much at the beginning of the year. But by the end of the year, he was kind of doing the same stuff that Brandon McIlwain was doing. So that, that job seems like it must be pretty much wide open going into this uh, next season. Can you see I, – I, I don't I've, – I've heard conflicting things on Devon Monster's eligibility for this year. Um, I don't know if he is. Maybe you can shed some light on that. And then also uh, whether Spencer Brash can factor in uh, to the competition as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, from – according to some sources that I've talked to, they feel very confident that is going to be eligible this year. He did kind of the Blake Barnett thing where, if you remember, Blake Barnett left Alabama – after, I think, the second game of the season, transferred to Palomar Col- Palomar, blah, 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 Palomar College.
0: That was tough. That, that was tough, to and 10. I appreciate you doing it well. Man, if I could talk, I'd be dangerous.
2: Uh, Palomar College is where he went. Don't know that he ever actually played there, but enrolled there as a student. Transferred to Arizona State and then was eligible, I want to say, within maybe a game or two at ASU. Monster left, I believe. After the third game of the season uh, at UCLA, didn't play at Palomar, but went the Juco route academically. And because they hadn't started classes at UCLA, he did the you know the semester that he needed to. And now he'll have a chance. I don't know that he'll be able to start right from the get go. But I feel like hearing from some sources, Cal feels like they have a good case to get him to play relatively early in the season, if not right off the bat. Otherwise, I think Spencer Brash, I, I think he's, I, I don't want to call him a project, but I don't think that they'll turn to him just yet. I think, you know, Garbers and uh, the other quarterback that they have that the transfer from McElroy. South Carolina, McElroy, Brandon McElroy, uh, yeah. that they're still going to kind of ride with those guys. I would anticipate Ross Bowers will leave as a grad transfer this year after being passed by both those guys. Um, I think Chase Forrest might finally be done with eligibility um, at Cal. Uh <laughs> even though it feels like he's been there for a while. Um, And he, hey, heroically almost rallied him to win a a bowl game. Uh, But, yes, Cal's got a quarterback problem. They've got guys at other positions, but they've got to get that quarterback problem figured out. And I don't think Spencer Brash will be ready to do it right away. So I think the sooner they can get Monster on the field, the better Cal's going to feel about that offense.
1: Kind of along the same lines, Brandon. Uh, Just looking up and down the class, it seems very – defensive heavy that you know the top three ranked players in the class or i guess uh six of the top five you know five of the top six uh, are all defensive players cal's defense was awesome last year it seemed like you'd probably want to help help out the offensive side a little bit more did you kind of notice that in this class and was that the plan just with graduations and stuff i don't know
2: that it was the plan it certainly was how it ended up being and but i think that's what happens a lot of times when you have a defensive-minded head coach you know the majority of the pack twelve except for maybe three schools have guys that their roots are on the offensive side of the ball. So you tend to see those schools really target and focus on offensive players. You've got this Cal staff that, you know, you've got a head coach in, in Justin Wilcox, who's a defensive guy. You've got Tim DeRuder, your defense coordinator, who's a former head coach, who is a good recruiter. And then you've got some of your other key recruiters, Gerald Alexander. He's a secondary coach. You've got uh, Peter Sermon, who's your linebackers coach, Tony Tuioti. So when four or five of your best recruiters with the, you know, with the exception of Marcus to Sopo and Nick Edwards, who are at quarterback and receivers respectively, but every positional unit that Cal has on the defense side of the ball has good recruiters. And so I think that's where you're seeing the majority of these guys coming from is from those relationships with your best recruiters. But I think that, the fact that they're going the Juco route to try to get some help at running back when they got Deshaun Collins out of city college, of San Francisco, Uh, Trevon Clark, a wide receiver out of El Camino that show you, Juwan Johnson's another one from, from Fullerton college, they've got three or four guys and that's not even counting monster from the Juco ranks that they're trying to get in, that they're not going to be able to wait on. Those guys are going to have to come in, be ready to play right away. Uh, You know, another thing that hurt Cal is there were some late defections, from key guys in that class that flipped their commitments to other schools. And Stanford got one of them in Bradley Archer, who was a four-star tight end out of the Bay area, but Cal was his dreams or Stanford was his dream school. So some of those key offensive guys ended up elsewhere. And, you know, it's kind of nothing Cal could do about that.
1: All right. You want to move on, David? Let's do it. Okay. So top four. Now we're in the top four. These are the only four classes that have more than, you know, usually multiple four-star and any five star players, uh more than three or so. Um at the you know, the minimum that these top four schools have at least eight four stars uh in already. So these are significantly uh different classes if you look at the rankings and the numbers. But we're gonna start with number four, and that is Stanford Cardinal.
0: So number four in the Pac-12, Stanford is number 20th nationally. Number 20 nationally, not number 20th. Number 20th. 20th (laughs) nationally, number 20. Um, Yeah, wow. Uh, They were 40th last year, um, so that's a big jump up. It's a much bigger class, I believe, than last year. They've actually, Ryan, we talked about this at length last year. They actually are close to filling up. They have 23 Ah. uh, signed NLIs this year. Um, just perusing the class and thinking about what Stanford's issues have kind of progressively been, um, I would have prioritized front seven on defense, um, definitely need to reload there, um, just with their issues, stopping the run this year and then offensive line. I would have tried to hit that pretty hard just to kind of rebuild some of that run blocking that was sorely absent this past year. Brandon, how do you think they did in both of those departments?
2: I, I think they did well. You know, I really like what Stanford did at this class. Um, just kind of across the board. Uh, the the lone exception being obviously that they did not sign a quarterback in this class. Um, that is an issue because Davis Mills, who they signed in two thousand seventeen, has been hurt for the pretty much the entirety of his time at Stanford. Jack West, who they signed last year, just okay. Uh, they did sign. Uh, Tanner McKee out of Cronus Centennial, but he's on his LDS mission, so he won't get there till next year. So really this class, I mean, in the trenches, it's strong on both the offensive line and the defensive line. Uh, Really good at linebacker, um, strong in the secondary. I think they really solve all those issues that they've had, except they've got to get another quarterback in. And so one thing that's going to be key for Stanford is even if McKee does return to Stanford after his mission, do they offer another quarterback in 2020? Because, if Davis Mills can't physically just become the guy they expect him to be, KJ Costello could theoretically leave after the 2019 season. You're looking at a roster that only has two scholarship quarterbacks and one's a guy that's been away from football three years. So that, to me, is the most glaring issue more than anything. What Stanford didn't do was not sign a quarterback, but I think that they solved a lot of issues at every other position on the field.
1: Now, David mentioned 23 uh, signed letters of intent you know, a lot of times the Stanford class will have like eight or ten guys, no, not but they're not a lot. Um, is this done or or would they make potential for another one or two guys uh, for the other signing? Guys? No,
2: I think they're done. I think at this point there's a couple guys that have outstanding offers from FBS programs, but they're weighing. Do they take the prefer to walk on at Stanford? One of those most notably is a kid named Drew Fowler, who's a top ten kid in the state of Washington. He's got an offer from Oregon State. He's got an offer from Louisville but Stanford and Washington were both full at the position, so they've offered him preferred walk-ons. So does he go the walk-on route at Washington or Stanford? Uh, he did take an official visit to Stanford last weekend. When they had their big visit weekend, they had all of their commits and signees in that weekend. Uh, so I think he would be the only guy that could potentially add to this group, but I think generally Stanford's done
0: with this class. With, uh, with Stanford, obviously, they – probably more than most programs these days, but maybe increasingly less so, Um, they are decreasingly so. Wow. God, words are hard. They're just so (laughs) difficult. There's so many of them, and you have to learn them all if you're actually going to use the English language or at least learn a good (laughs) amount, and yet I still can't master the few I actually do know. Anyway, when you're looking at this class, Stanford obviously doesn't start a bunch of true freshmen, though they've done that more so in recent years. Uh, Who do you think could make an immediate impact?
2: You know, there's a couple of guys. I think one of them is going to be Elijah Higgins, who's the highest-rated player in their class. Uh, Dave and I got to see him last week at the the Polynesian Bowl. Uh, At the receiver position, you know, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. How is he leaving with one year left to play? Because I swear to God – he came in with Andrew Luck. Like it, it felt <laughs> like he was there. For
0: I feel like years. he's been catching balls over Jaleel with for both of their entire careers. <laughs> and Jaleel with was at UCLA for four years and wasn't there last year, so there's no explanation for it.
2: Yeah, Nate, Nate Metters as well. Like how many highlights are are Seagul Whiteside against UCLA? Uh, but it feels like he's been there forever. But he's gone. Uh, Trent Irwin, who another kid, he he was only at Stanford four years, but since we've been watching Trent since he was an eighth grader on the seven-on-seven circuit, it's hard to believe that he's gone. So Stanford's in need of some playmakers at receiver, at running back. you got Bryce Love, who's who's gone. Uh, It's still uncertain if Cam Scarlett's going to return for next fall. So Austin Jones, who has been at any one point the number one, the number two running back in the West for really the last two years, uh, just a workhorse type back. He's already signed. So with Higgins and Jones, I would expect both those guys to get on the field right away. I would imagine that Higgins will will probably, you know, Michael Wilson played a lot as a true freshman this year. He probably becomes their go-to guy. But Higgins becomes maybe their number two receiver, if not by the beginning of the season. I would say by the middle of the season. And I anticipate Austin Jones is going to get into that running back rotation very quickly Stanford doesn't hesitate to play guys early if they're ready. So I think with their need at the skill positions, with with losing Love on our Segal-Whiteside and Irwin, there's going to be a need to get these skill position guys up and ready to roll pretty quickly.
1: Brandon, one of the guys uh, who wasn't able to participate in the Polynesian Bowl, uh, outside linebacker Tristan Sinclair, seemed to always find you wherever you were. You guys chatted quite a bit uh, at the practices. Well, I guess he was bored because he wasn't. Practicing, but any kind of insights that you know, maybe uh, he shared with you about this class or Stanford in general?
2: Hey, maybe it's because I'm fun to talk to, Ryan. Oh, do you ever think about that? that It's that
1: (laughs) I just avoid you out there, man. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding.
2: Exactly. You you leave, but Tristan finds me to be fascinating conversation. No, it was actually interesting because there was some good stuff from Sinclair. Um, You know, Stanford, one thing that I don't know that how many fans outside of the Stanford fan base realize is. A lot of schools will do official visits every weekend. They have a home game during the season. A lot of schools will do official visits every weekend in December that they can, or every weekend in January they'll do. There's some schools that'll do them in the spring now. Stanford does one official visit weekend. They call it Big Visit Weekend. It's always the first weekend after the dead period ends, so it's after the All American Games, the Army Bowl, and Under Armour Game, but now before Poly Bowl. So Stanford had a like. I think there was eight guys or seven guys that played in the Poly Bowl they were all on their official visit over the weekend. So, you know, talking to Sinclair, it was mostly about, you know, the guys on the visit. A lot of them were guys that he's talked with over direct message or, you know, in the group chat, but he just got to meet for the first time guys that he's eyeballing now for the first time and saying, Hey, you know, I hadn't seen the, there's an offensive lineman from Pennsylvania. I hadn't seen him uh, before. So I got to see him and man, he's a big kid. That's going to have a chance to play. You know, I I talked to Drake, Nugent, he's one of their linemen or, uh, they just gave me the kid, the offensive lineman that they have, Barrett Miller from the other kid from Colorado. You know, getting a chance to see him. And, you know, now we've only talked with these guys, and now we get to see these guys. And I think the reality is for some of these kids, because Stanford recruits such a national stage, is hey, these guys are bigger than I thought. They may be ready to play. Earlier in our career. um You know, and the other thing was kind of Lisa Rice spoke again, as she always does on these Stanford visits. And, you know, you just talk and you hear when you talk to these kids, you're like, you know, if you're not playing football at the next level, you will be running a Fortune 500 company here in the next few years. And Tristan's great because he uh, plays in the East Bay Athletic League, which is the top league in Northern California. So he was giving me insight on a lot of kids in the 2020 class, the 2021 class to watch and, uh, you know, ruin with some of the players that hadn't committed yet. So he was great on a lot of insight, but just kind of hearing him talk about this Stanford class and, and kind of the direction that the Stanford class is, is going. It's one of their bigger classes they've signed in a while. Well, it was some pretty fascinating stuff.
1: Cool. Anything else, David? We move on? No, yeah, let's move on. Okay. We're uh, we're in the top three. Number three, we have Washington Huskies. <laughs>
0: Washington is number three in the Pac-12, number 18 nationally after being number 16 last year. Um, immediate thing that jumps out to me when I look at this class of 20 signees um, is that they have three four-star defensive tackles signed. Um, that's, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> I think there should actually be rules against that. Brandon, could you comment on whether there are rules against that? And if not, um, should there be some put in place?
2: I believe the rule is called only sec schools are allowed to write multiple elite defensive linemen. So, you know, Chris Peterson, as, as much of a rule follower as he is, you know, he might be breaking the, uh, Omerita code of defensive line recruiting as that applies to the sec, but just share, to, just yeah. share.
0: All right. Yeah, That's, you know, I believe in, in sharing. Anderson. That's. That's my political philosophy. Ryan's not of the, the same ilk, but I believe in sharing. <laughs> and, this is, this and this is this is selfish.
2: And it's not a very northwesty thing to not share. You know, they're very communal up in this part of the country, so doesn't seem to be falling in line with that. But no, it, it's funny. You know, you look at their deep tackle class, Noah Nalu, who was like their fourth-rated D tackle, was awesome last week out of the Polynesian Bowl. That real tall is only about six feet tall. Uh, but he's got a great motor. Sama Palma didn't get the play. He's hurt, but uh, there's some people close to the Washington program that actually think he's the best defensive tackle that they signed. He's only their third best tackle. And then you've got, obviously, Fatui Tuatelli, You've got Jacob Bandis. Then there's a the linebacker uh, position. you got Latu Latu, who is an outside backer slash defensive end, was outstanding last week. Uh, and then Alfonso Cipatala, who – He's a local kid, but you know, he's one of the most overlooked local kids I think Washington signed in a long time uh, out of Federal Way High School. He was really good last week. Nikki Ayu missed the majority of his senior year with a uh, knee ligament tear, but you know, he was a guy that up until that point was really strong, and then he was at the Polynesian Bowl, but one of my favorite players in California was Joshua Calvert, who for whatever reason UCLA didn't Try to prioritize, uh, even though they had his older brother Bo signed, and you know Calvert was a guy who played quarterback for Oaks and linebacker, do whatever his team asked, and he's just a gamer. So yeah, why would you want a I'll,
0: multi-position athlete who's related to a player that's already on your roster? That seems weird
2: <laughs> at, at a school that you've recruited well at historically. It doesn't make, make much sense, but hey, you could say that one for this Pac-12 South recap. <laughs> so, so recruiting, recruiting UCLA is a whole other topic. Uh, But I love what they did in their front seven. And then you look at their secondary, which has really been the strength of their recruiting under Jimmy Lake. You get a guy like Cameron Williams, who's a four-star athlete. Cameron Favakulinen from Westlake, who's a four-star corner, who could also play safety. Uh, And then you got Trent McDuffie, who's one of the premier cover corners out west in this class. You know, Washington did an outstanding job front to back on the defensive side of the
1: ball. You know, we were in uh, last week for the Polynesian Bowl. I believe 11 Washington signees were in that game, which seems ridiculous. But uh, anyone that you saw in person that you you really liked?
2: Uh, I would say that, that probably seeing him in person. I've seen him in the, on the camp circuit. I was at his school back in November or in October. But when you actually get to see Liatou to, lock to move around at 270 pounds he's a a top tier rugby player and he's a guy that i've talked to some folks that are in the rug or the rugby circles that said if you know if he wanted to play rugby he could be like a world-class type rugby player and you see that athleticism when he's moving around when he's moving in space when he's trying to drop into pass coverage you just see a guy who is super athletic who is really fluid who can bend he's flexible a lot of agility and then you see him coming off the edge at 270 pounds but with that quickness off the edge it makes for a pretty fascinating football player and i think washington fans are going to love what they get out of him
0: so um uh, i think if you're a, a fan of another pac-12 school the scariest thing about this class aside from the rule breaking the obvious rule breaking from chris peterson <laughs> on recruiting defensive tackles um Only three of these dudes are from Washington, and they recruited the crap out of California. This is maybe the best I've seen Washington recruit California in years and years and years. Um, What do you make of that in terms of this being kind of – is this the first time where they've kind of – I mean, last year, obviously, they had a top class, but it was a little bit more Washington-heavy, a little Mm -hmm. bit more kind of picking and choosing from the West. Um, Is this kind of the first time they've really been able to kind of go in and get – pretty much whoever they want from California?
2: Well, it kind of goes with what I was saying earlier about with Washington State. Like, you really start to see the bump in recruiting in the subsequent classes, and now you've got a Washington program that when this class was being built was coming on the heels of back-to-back New Year's Day, New Year's Six Bowls. They were in the playoff two years ago, the Fiesta Bowl last year, and now you go to the Rose Bowl this year, so they're they're definitely reaping the rewards of their success on the field, but I think they also took advantage of you know a transition year UCLA recruiting wise, and then kind of an up and down year um, to probably put it mildly, Ryan uh, at mm-hmm. USC. And these are guys that I think historically, let's say you know when Jim moore really had things going at UCLA, and Steve Sarkisian was at UC, uh, USC. They probably, you know, get a Josh Calvert. UCLA probably gets a Josh Calvert um, with some of the Bay Area guys. I mean, these are, they, they absolutely poached players that UCLA and USC typically would have gotten that because of whatever the recruiting strategy at UCLA is and then USC's Up and down year washington really took advantage i think oregon did as well we'll talk about them but you know california was very good to both those two northwest schools this year and i think that was by design because it wasn't a great talented class in the state of washington but you've got good recruiters on that washington staff that now have a lot of success on the field to sell remember how many times steve sarkisian would try to recruit california but he didn't have a track record of success as a coach to get those kids to buy in fully uh, from the top end kids, Chris Peterson has that
1: five kids from Hawaii too. So more, more kids from Hawaii than Washington.
2: I mean, after spending a week there, you can see why (laughs) those kids love, I mean, you could, you leave the beautiful sun of Hawaii to come to the Northwest where it's not sunny. It is not (laughs) beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful, but, but I think that's another concerted effort where, you know, Kaika Malloy, who's got a lot of ties to Hawaii, who's a native Hawaiian himself. Uh, Keith Bonafa, the running backs coach, played at the University of Hawaii. I think Chris Peterson has really made that a priority for him. And you look at this class and you look at the next class, it could very much be the same story with a lot of those top kids from Hawaii in the 2020 class following these teammates of theirs to the University of Washington.
1: This is a, a, a class that's ranked I 18th nationally, third in the Pac-12, like we mentioned. 20 commits. Is there room... Uh, do, do you think Chris Peterson is going to add some more guys? Because I, I've had this asked to me a lot on the pair style. USC is number two right now. Um, could Washington pass us? I think they're like 10 points behind or something. Uh, USC is probably going to add some three-star guys. Probably not much more than that. Can Washington get a couple more four-star guys and actually pass USC and be the second-ranked class in the Pac-12? Well,
2: I think the one guy that's contingent on that happening would be Puka Nakua because if he leaves USC's class and joins Washington, he hurts USC's score by increasing Washington's score, but the guy who really doesn't have any bearing on SC one way or the other is Daniel Hamuli, who's a four-star linebacker out of the Bay Area, whose teammate Noah Nalu already signed with the Huskies. They could end with both those two guys, plus they could get Jaden Williams out of Corona Centennial, who's a three-star kid as well, and then they're, they're still in the mix somewhat for Henry Toto uh, out of De La Salle, so if you could close with Toto and Hamuli, that like, gives you he- Two four stars, but then Puka ends up being a guy that hurts SC but helps Washington's class.
1: Interesting. Wow. All right. um, So we'll see. Then we, anything else, David? We're going to move on to number one. No, let's move on. The number one class in the Pac 12 belongs to Oregon Ducks.
0: Wow. All right. So Oregon (laughs) um, really recruited the hell out of this class. Uh, Mario Cristobal proved his rep. Um, as did that entire staff. They finished, or they are right now, eighth uh, nationally um, after being 13th last year. So this is two top 15 classes in a row for Oregon, um, which is kind of rarefied error for the Ducks. They're not used to recruiting. They're used to recruiting well, but not quite that well. Um, Looking at this class, obviously one guy that that jumps out to you is Kayvon Thibodeau, um, a guy they kind of won a national recruiting battle for. Uh, what are your thoughts on him and, and how quickly he can make an impact?
2: Yeah, I think that they're bringing him in with the expectation that he's going to play as soon as he's on campus, which is now. So they are bringing him in with the expectation he's going to play right away. And I think that that's what they want from him. I think you look at what Thibodeau is, that's a, another guy that, you know, USC never really seemed to prioritize. UCLA never really recruited all that much. Um, but I think that from a optics standpoint that is his biggest significant recruiting win for Oregon maybe since DeAnthony Thomas um you know DeAnthony Thomas was committed to USC for a long time before he flipped to Oregon on signing day Thibodeau was wide open for much of the recruitment and Alabama Florida State and Florida were right there in the mix for him so it's a big win nationally for them and it also gives them a guy who could come in and be an impact guy from the day first day he steps foot on campus so clearly the crown joy. He's the highest rated player to sign with the PAC 12 school in the 2019 cycle. And obviously a big win for Mario Cristobal because not only did he beat his former boss uh, at Florida state, Willie Taggart, who was head coach at Oregon for where he beat his former boss at Alabama, Nick Saban. And then he gets the guy on top of that.
1: So obviously he's a big name, Southern California recruiting uh, the enrollees, mostly from out of state, which is interesting. But if you look at the other guys that signed, the top players that signed for this class, a lot of Southern California guys. Any surprises, anyone stand out to you that some of the players they were able to snag from Southern California?
2: No, I mean, it seemed like so many of these guys were, were heavy leans to Oregon. I think from the, the probably the, the biggest one that was holding on to Jonah Tanu and Mace Funa. You know, Mace Funa being a modern-day kid with an SC offer. I mean, Ryan, as you know well, uh, if you have an offer from USC and you're at modern day, 99 times out of hundred, you're going to USC. He committed early to Oregon. USC kept trying to flip him, and he stuck with Oregon, uh, Oregon. He tore his ACL in the spring. Oregon stuck with him, but USC was really trying to get hard, trying hard to get him. They already had, uh, two of his teammates from modern day there last year in Almond Rossi and Brown, JP Daniels, and they recruit and brew, but Oregon held on to him. And then Jonah, another kid, he's a Narbonne kid at school that USC, when they've wanted a kid out of Narbonne, they've gotten the kids out of Narbonne and he was able to, or Oregon was able to hold on to him. So I think the bigger surprise wasn't so much getting those guys to commit. It was holding on to them when it got down to crunch time. The,
0: one of the things that actually uh, kind of conversely to that, uh nine guys in this class between the enrollees, the signed letters, and and guys who were just committed um, from outside of the region. Uh, Texas, Florida, there's an Alabama, there's a Georgia, there's a Tennessee. Um, is that... Do you think that's um, the Cristobal energy and also his ability to recruit Florida? Is it Oregon's national profile from the Kelly and Helfrich years, finally paying some dividends in terms of national recruiting? Is it just Oregon's general profile with all the Nike stuff. What's what's your sense of why they're able to? I mean, pull some guys. I mean, a four star to Tennessee. Um, you know, a couple of four stars out of Florida. What's your sense of why they're able to do that?
2: I, I would say it's all of the above, Dave. I, I think it, it's certainly Crystal Ball's emphasis on recruiting nationally. Uh, When you're in the state of Oregon, you don't have a lot of elite talent in your backyard in the state. So you have to recruit nationally and you know that you're going to have to go into California, but you still got to deal with the other 11 Pac-12 schools that want to recruit California. So you try to recruit Texas you try to recruit Florida. You have assistant coaches that have ties or experience recruiting other parts of the country. You have the high profile. I mean, Oregon might've been down in 2016, but two years before they were playing for a national championship. You know, these kids still remember Oregon as the, the blur offense under Chip Kelly as the the Marcus Mariota team. So their Oregon to them is still a program that's high profile. It is the school that Nike it has the, the new, the nice uniforms for. They've got the flash and dash. And so I think Oregon still has a pretty high f- profile nationally and that allowed them to win recruiting battles down South in the, in the Southwest, in the Southeast. And, you know, I think that that's going to continue to be a point of emphasis moving forward with Mario Cristobal.
1: Um, just in the last couple of days, the ducks picked up a few more commitments. I think three more commitments from some three-star players. Uh, how close to done uh, is Mario Cristobal with this class?
2: I think that there's still a couple of guys that they're waiting on. Daniel High officially visited last weekend. I'm sorry. Two weekends ago, right before he went down to the Polynesian Bowl, uh, that they've already gotten uh, the two commit, two of the three commits that they got over the weekend. Uh, were guys that were officially visiting? Uh, Jamal Hill was one of them. So I, I think you look at what they've done, they've still got priorities that are out there. Logan Sagapolu announced for them at the Polynesian Bowl, but he won't enroll until 2021 because he's serving his LDS mission right out of high school. I think Haimuli is the main one. They're trying to get up in for an official visit. The weekend before signing day, he'll visit Washington this weekend. Uh, If they can get Puka, and if they can close with Puka and potentially Haimuli, who I think they're running second for with Haimuli, that only enhances their position as the top program in the Pac-12, top recruiting class in the in the Pac-12 in this cycle.
0: Do we have to get used to this new reality where where Oregon is an elite recruiting power or nearly elite recruiting power? Like, is that something you think is consistent now? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like they've had a couple of great years. I mean, they've been fine, but they're recruiting as if they're, I mean, right now it's, it's the same. You know, USC goes five and seven and they'll have a top 15 class because that's what USC does. They sneeze and they have a top 15 class. Is, is, is something similar now becoming true about Oregon just because of that national profile and, you know, the, the fact that they've prioritized recruiting in such a huge way?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody in the Pac-12 did a better job of marketing their recruitment this year than Oregon. If you remember back to the spring when the evaluation period was going on in mid-April and in May, you know, there were tweets coming out every day. You know, California, we're here. Texas, we're here. They let everybody know that coaches were coming to those states, and those coaches were hitting numerous schools every day. So you take Crystal Ball, who is, was an elite recruiter, one of the probably top three recruiting assistant coaches in college football when he was at Alabama. Who's got that energy? He's got a staff full of energetic recruiters: the Keith Hayworths, the Dante Williams, the Joe Salaveas. You know, even though they they lost Court Dennison when they had him, he was a key part of the recruiting in this class. Um, you've got guys at at all these different positions that are energetic tireless recruiters that have connections everywhere Oregon's not going anywhere I mean it, it's a lot like when when Washington had Steve Sarkeesian who was a good recruiter and he had energetic young recruiters on his staff that had ties everywhere they really hit the road hard and, and at that time Oregon had Chip Kelly and they weren't throwing out as many offers And they had a different approach to recruiting now the table's have flipped a little bit Chris Peterson you know doesn't they do a good job recruiting but they're they're not as, uh, I would say, aggressive as Oregon is now. Uh, but 10 years ago, that's how Sark did. And you, you kind of have to. Providing plentiful recruits like UCLA and USC have in their backyard, like Cal has in their backyard. When, when you're at a school that you've got to recruit nationally and you've got to get the dudes to come in and you don't you can't sell those to the local kids you've got to be energetic and tireless and turn up every rock that you possibly can. And that's what I think Ball has really emphasized with his staff.
1: Hey, Brandon, the Ducks are bringing in uh, five wide receivers. Uh, just, you know, just looking at each class that we were going through, it seemed like everybody was bringing in like at least four or five wide receivers. Is that like a, a different trend? Is it just because the offenses where there a lot of receivers available, uh, especially on the West coast this year? Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, it was a pretty deep class receivers-wise out west. And and really naturally, I mean, Oregon's not recruiting just local receivers. They they do have uh, a national receiver, Lance Woolhoy out of Tennessee, uh, Josh Delgado. He played at IMG, but he's a Southern California kid. He was at St. John Bosco before that. Uh, but I, I think that they really made it a point of emphasis to continue to give themselves playmakers, to continue to add to that offensive arsenal that they're trying to build there. You've got some guys that can come in and play right away. Uh, you've got guys that may need to develop a little bit more. A guy like J.R. Waters, who was more of a basketball player uh, before really turning it on his senior year, he may not be ready to play right away at the pack. 12 level, but upside physically, you get a guy like him, you develop him. You have guys like Micah Pittman and Lance Wilhoy that are probably more ready to play as true freshmen, which gives you time to develop a guy like J.R. Waters and you don't have to turn him to the wolves right away. You can give him two or three years to refine his route running to you know work on his uh, his breaks, work on his hands, work on all of that stuff, get a little bit bigger. Uh, but you've got yourself enough players coming in that some can be ready to play right away some can use some development time and you're getting kind of the value and benefit out of all of them. All
0: right.
1: Yeah. Um, one other thing, Brandon, just overall only two five stars signed so far for the, uh, the PAC 12, you know, there's 30, 32 total, right? Um, is that kind of surprising? That's just kind of been the way it's, it's been lately. Just not a lot of five stars, I guess, staying in the PAC 12 footprint.
2: Yeah, and I think that that just kind of shows you, you know, we could blame Larry Scott for that. I think he could blame for enough, so we'll just blame him anyway. But I, I think that's, the you know, Pac-12 really made a concerted effort to start to be seen on, I mean, maybe not at the optimal timeframes, but by being seen on national television. So they'll take those 7.30 games. They'll take those late night West Coast kickoffs. The problem is the rest of the country do the same thing. They want to be seen at, on these national broadcasts. And so in the old days where you could tell a recruit that, hey, you know, if you go to this school, your parents will never get to see you play. Nowadays, kids can be seen all 12 of their games, whether it's on the phone, it's on their iPad, it's on a computer, or it's on television. No longer is the case where the West Coast has the hometown angle to say, the only way you'll get seen by your parents is if you play locally. Now these national programs are doing it. But then the problem is the national programs are now winning with these guys. You got Tua, who is from Hawaii, playing at Alabama, leading them to a national championship last year into the game this year. Najee Harris, who's playing a lot at Alabama as a a backup. You've got guys all over the country that are from the West Coast, and they're not afraid to go to the Big Ten. They're not afraid to go to the SEC. They're not afraid to go to the ACC or the Big 12 and flourish. They are looking for that opportunity now because, in their mind, they're playing high-profile football that's going to give them a chance to play for a playoff berth. And get them drafted. So the Pac-12 has more problems than they even realize in that not only are they being lapped recruiting-wise by a lot of these programs nationally, but now they're losing the guys that they thought that they had the best chance to hold close to home. They're losing those guys to these other conferences.
1: Cool. Not great. No. (laughs) Uh, Should we – Larry Scott, you are. Herocious. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh well Brent, Brandon awesome stuff. I don't know if you have anything else David but we should probably let uh Brandon go. It's amazing how he can just rattle off all these guys from all over the He's incredible. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Now you know why
2: like Tristan Sinclair wants to talk to me there Ryan. <laughs> yeah, what a dick. Ryan. And you were
1: very good when you they did the hit for you on if you guys watched the polyball on CBS Sports Network. Uh, they went to Brandon and I, I super smooth. I don't know if you knew the questions in advance, but I mean, it just seemed like that flowed really well. Sometimes those are awkward and I thought you killed it on that Brandon.
2: Well, thank you. Nothing is hard to do when you're in Hawaii, Ryan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next year, we got to get David to come out. That would be fun. Then we could all do a podcast in person from Hawaii
2: at a bar. Hey, we'll get Blair to join us. And Blair is one of those youngsters, millennials. So I'm sure he'll be able to figure out a way to hook us up to a coconut that will be electronically <laughs> sound and give us fast wi-fi
1: <laughs> yeah so so david Perfect. put in put in uh with tracy the expense reporter whatever you need to do for, to go to hawaii um we're, we'll work it it'll be good yeah i'll
0: get i'll get on that <laughs> <laughs>
1: brandon huffman all right yes thanks fellas thank you so much see brandon. you brandon bye-bye well that was uh that was cool stuff dave i don't know was brandon like opening coffins or something there at some point do you remember do you know what he was doing there so
0: i i think it it felt to me having never been in brandon's office space that he was like uh, leaning back in a chair Uh, like it felt like it it was making one of those like creaky chair noises and then it felt like he was opening a christmas present and I, (laughs) i want to imagine that he was sitting there leaning back in his chair you know dropping hot fiery knowledge on us <laughs> while opening a christmas present
1: it was good that's, stuff.
0: in my mind's eye that's how i imagined brandon huffman
1: yes well we want to jump into some questions before we do i want to talk to everybody out there about mac weldon i'm wearing my mac weldon underwear right now great stuff if they mac weldon if you don't know they believe in smart design premium fabrics and simple shopping you go to their website macweldon.com it's really easy to go on there check out all their stuff and and checking out is is really easy so i bought my stuff there i think you'll like it go check it out it will be the most comfortable underwear socks shirts undershirts hoodies and sweatpants that you will ever wear i love the stuff that i got there's also the silver underwear and shirts that are naturally uh antimicrobial which means they eliminate odor so that's pretty cool if you want to check it out uh if you know they want you to be comfortable so if you don't like a pair you can keep it and they will still refund you, no questions asked. So it's really no no risk at all if you go check them out. And we have a very special offer here on the Podcast of Champions. So if you go to MacWeldon.com, 20% off your first order, what you have to do is enter promo code POC at checkout. Promo code POC. That will get you 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. If you want to email me, let me know what you think uh when you try it out. And uh, I let I like the promo code POC, Dave. I, we should tell people that. Sometimes they give us weird promo codes. POC is perfect. I think Mac Weldon gets us.
0: Yeah, Mac Weldon, I think, really understands us deeply in a fundamental way. And that's why I appreciate them as a sponsor.
1: Yes. POC, that's that's for all the other sponsors out there. That's what we they want. They
0: understand our underwear needs. They understand our promo code <laughs> needs. What more could you want from a sponsor?
1: I, it's perfect. And, uh, yeah, I love the stuff. Yeah. Um, So we had a, a text message, David, that's, I I got, I pulled it up on Google voice because it somehow sent like 15 or 16 short lines. Did you see that one?
0: I did. That's Uh, not the one at the top though.
1: Oh, is that not the one at the top? Okay.
0: Are you getting nudged? Is that that new Gmail thing that is just built to like give you anxiety?
1: Uh, no, that was one. The, the one at the top, I think, is one I responded to. This is great radio, by the way. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I'll, well, the,
0: the the number one, I think, is a vicious assault on our brand.
1: Okay, so I'm we do not going to
0: stand for it.
1: Well, let's, let's uh, do it.
0: It's from last Friday, and it said, "Ryan, it's Friday afternoon, and no POC. I'm worried about you. The streak is in danger. You didn't leave Dave in charge of getting things set up, did you? <laughs> and I would say I was the one functional part of the podcast last week. <laughs> Like David I was the was one who was manning the position. I was ready to hold forth on all sorts of topics. And yet you two lay about you lackluster additions to the podcast were unable to find an internet connection.
1: Yeah. Well, we had one. It just wasn't, it just wasn't going to work. He Brandon definitely wanted to record it in a bar that had like music playing. And uh, it, it might've worked if we had like a dual microphone, dual, headset sort of thing that we could connect to one computer, but we were trying to do two different devices over Skype and it just, no, it was not good. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So this text message, I'll read it just so I have it pulled up, but it's, I think it's from uh, a week ago or so, but it's, it's really weird the way it came in. It's all choppy, but I'll read it for you. It said, Ryan and Dave, to add to your discussion of fandom in the sec versus the PAC 12, I'll try and offer some perspective to what I've seen in East Tennessee, living in a suburb of Knoxville, the fans are literally crazy about their team. They wake up each morning, reach over to turn their alarm clocks off. Uh, do people still use those? I still do. I don't know. No,
0: <laughs> I, I, I use my phone.
1: Yeah. Millennials don't use alarm clocks anymore, but, uh, but in Tennessee, East Tennessee, maybe they do. Uh, so they turn off their alarm clocks as they take their daily shot of the, of the, in parentheses, orange Kool-Aid in the Pac-12 or its footprint. I feel your point is spot on that much less of the fans are diehard to the point of rioting in the streets at the mention of any name rumored for any coaching position, willing to drop $45 million for Gundy, and seeking, and seeking Leach to save all hopes as the athletic director is fired. From living in town, it's a train wreck. While on the other hand, could you imagine if Herm was hired in Knoxville? The West Coast definitely has its bias, as Dave was mentioning. Time zone, size of defensive linemen, network issues. Thanks, Champagne Larry. Uh, Oh, champagne Larry hold on the truth is we all know champagne
2: Larry likes to roll large right
1: (laughs) (laughs) had to put that drop in there Uh, but (laughs) the West also seems to have uh, college athletics in perspective with reality it's simple entertainment loving and cheering for a team slash school slash player and coach doesn't overshadow every aspect of individual life uh, of an individual's life excuse me Uh, thanks for the podcast and offering an entertaining listen by the way There's still room on the Herm train. Cheers from Tennessee Taylor. Whew.
0: Okay. Thanks, Tennessee
1: Taylor. Um, Good job
0: piecing that together.
1: It was, yeah, so I had to look on the Google, because you couldn't, from the emails, it would have been really hard. So I had pulled it up on Google Voice itself. So I I wanted to get that one out of the way.
0: Good. Good idea. All right. uh, This is from Mike in Highland, Utah. Pac-12 basketball. What? Dave and Ryan. I know. I know. (laughs) We're we're gonna get through it all together. Thank you for your sacrifice in life by subjecting yourselves to reporting on the ferocious item that is college basketball and in particular Pac-12 basketball. Sorry. You were a little late on that, but it was good. For those for those of us that no longer have the stomach to watch this dumpster fire, your weekly review will keep whatever interest remains dormant inside of us somewhat alive in the hopes that someday in the future this pile of used hay becomes once again interesting. Michael, I have some very bad news for you. Unless you ask us every single week, we will not be talking about Pac-12 basketball. Uh, last week, a question asking to assign a dog breed to each Pac-12 football coach got short shrift, but it sparked a question in my mind. All right, I'm going to have a note here, too. We answered that question that we said we weren't going to answer for, like, 15 minutes. (laughs) Oops. Anyway, namely, of the 12 basketball coaches in the Pac-12, how many are simply pure dog crap, and how many could be classified as real coaches? Finally, is there any hope for college basketball? Will it return to be something more than a glorified one-and-done display? Please list all of the culprits that have destroyed college basketball. Is it more than poor coaching, a selfish culture? NBA Farm System... And uh, excessive media hype. All right. Let's answer the first question first, and I'll just do that one. You probably can't even name more than three coaches in the Pac-12. All right. So let me just pull it up so I don't miss anybody. Uh, Here is how I would categorize it. Uh, Cal has a joke of a coach. (laughs) Washington State has a joke of a coach. Colorado has a decent coach. Stanford has a joke of a coach. Oregon has a good coach. Utah has a good coach. USC has a joke of a coach. UCLA doesn't even have a coach. <laughs> Oregon State has a decent coach. Arizona State has a decent coach. Arizona has a good coach. And I'll go either way on Mike Hopkins right now. Let's say good coach. Um, so that's what? One, two, three, four. Out and out decent or good coaches, a couple of decent and a whole lot of trash and one uh, fired coach. It's not great. No, it's not great. And I would say UCLA not having a coach and having a poor one before that. It's it's detrimental on a on a bigger scale than when, you know, Washington State has a bad coach just because the expectations are wildly different for each program. And so when UCLA is is struggling and failing the same way like USC football is right now, it has a disproportionate effect on the rest of the perception of the league. Yeah. Like if we were sitting here and UCLA was elite or had an elite coach and they were right there with Washington at 14 and four, along with Arizona, um, I I don't know if the entire narrative would be different, but it'd be a little bit different.
1: Yeah. Is it still a one bid league? Yeah. 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 Really? Yeah.
0: I mean, we'll, we'll see oh. what Arizona's able to do um, down the stretch here. But if if Washington wins the Pac-12 tournament, they look like they're the team that might have the best the best chance at a bid right now because Arizona State's doing its uh, usual thing apparently now in the early era, which is kind of falling apart after conference after non-conference play. Um, but right now it looks like the only ones that have a, even a realistic chance are Washington, Arizona and Arizona State and None of them really have the resume
1: right now, but we'll see. Interesting. Uh, he wants to know what destroyed college basketball? Or was there another <sighs> one? Was there, wait, oh. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, th- I think it's, well, he's asking kind of just, is there any hope for it? Um, I mean, I think one and done played a role. I think AAU just by itself played a big role that's kind of underappreciated just in terms of um, the importance of that became maybe even more pronounced than high school basketball. I mean, not maybe. It, it did um, for kids, these travel teams where it, you can hear a lot of, like, scouty-type people talk about it, and they basically say, you know, kids don't really va- – they, they have to be taught to value winning and losing after going through AAU because you're playing, like, three games a day in the summer, um, and you just stop caring about that sort of thing, and you're carried more, caring more about – you know, the flash and, and doing certain things outside of the fundamentals of basketball. Um, and I buy that to an extent. Um, I think it's just multifaceted. I think there have been a lot of things that have kind of infected youth basketball and that's bled into college basketball. There's an entire mentality of, you know, college simply being a, a, a necessary stop on the way to the pros now. Um, and it's kind of treated that way because of the one and done. Um, and, I'm, I'm conflicted about it. I think all the kids should be allowed to go do whatever they want to make money. Um, but I also college basketball was my first love in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, especially college athletics, um, much more than even than college football. So it is kind of a bittersweet thing that, um, you know, my, my, I, I think these kids should be allowed to go play, you know, immediately for money, but that would, I I still think that would probably – at this point, because Pandora's box has been opened a little bit, I think the culture would be, oh, just everybody's going to put their name in and then go to the G League if they don't make it in the NBA. And so you're going to end up with less talented college basketball, even if you do away with one and done at this point. Um, And maybe there's a stopgap two and done, but that – I would start to have kind of dilemmas with that too because then you're forcing kids to do – two years of college before they can even get paid for what they do well. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm conflicted about it. I don't know. I don't know if college basketball is ever going to even rise to the level it was 10 years ago when the Pac-12 was the strongest it's been in forever in 2008 when you know there were like five elite teams. Um, I don't know if it's ever going to be like that uh, again. Um, maybe, but I, I just don't know.
1: I've said this before too, like, you know, Dave was definitely more of a college basketball fan than I was, but I think I was a, a I'm a pr- decent fan. I mean, not just the tournament. I would turn on big Monday or whatever it was. And that, you know, in the evening or whatever, when I'd get off work, I would watch some college basketball during this type of season. Cause that's, you know, that what was on. And I don't watch any college basketball at all anymore. And I don't know. I can't tell you personally why, but it just seems like there's a lot of people that are like that and if it's just the product i don't know i'm not sure what it was but it just hasn't been as enticing to me as it was before you know and even like the tournament like i don't really love filling out the bracket i mean i love watching the first two weekends and seeing all the upsets and stuff but it's just not as I just felt like I knew a lot more about it before and the interest isn't there. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if I, if that's like a typical thing for people, but just personally, it's just not been as interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I start from a bigger baseline of interest anyway. Um, and then I, what I would also say is um, compared to like college football, there are a lot of people who uh, prefer college football, not simply because their favorite team plays college football, but because it's a more innovative and interesting sport than the pros like you can, you can easily make the argument that more kind of wild and weird stuff happens in college football. Maybe up until this last season, the NFL starting right. to kind of open things up a little bit more. But you could make that argument for the longest time. But the NBA has been a clearly superior product to college basketball for years now. You have to go back a good ways. I think college basketball has an infection of conservatism in just kind of the way. Coaches overly control the game um, in in just in terms of the tempo, in terms of the pace, but also just in terms of uh, what they're allowing these kids to do. They're running the same sort of offensive sets they've been running for 30 years. And there hasn't been that in, in infusion of kind of math and stats that's made this. You know the NBA kind of a wide open, more wide open game than it was, say, in the early 2000s when it was a lot of post play and a lot of just kind of grinded out affairs. And the Pistons were winning titles. Um, it's now more of a high scoring, more up and down, more fun thing. And college basketball, I think, has has maybe it's starting to warm up a little bit, but it's kind of gone the opposite way um, as these coaches have have gotten more and more controlling. And I think that also. Again, it's a multifaceted issue, but I think that's also one thing that hurts the sport is um, just over control of the game and 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 over control the game with outdated methods. Yeah, Um, because I mean, look, a a lot of people have complaints with the Houston Rockets and the style of basketball they play where it's you can you can just see the calculations being thrown out there when they're playing. But it is more wide open. They do score like 130 points pretty occasion, pretty often. Um, So it's just it's a different. It's a different deal, um, and I think uh, college basketball could use a little bit of revolution.
1: And it's hard too when it's they're so different from year to year. Like, so my wife's a big Tennessee grad, and they're they're number one in the country. She's a big Tennessee fan. She graduated from there. They're number one in the country right now, and it's got a pretty good. It's not like they recruited five one and done guys, and they're good. They you know they have a bunch of dudes that have been there a while, and they've they you know they got Barnes, the coach, who you know brought brought them together, and it's like. That's kind of rare to see something like that. It's more like what you're seeing from Duke or like when Kentucky would be good. like you, those kind of guys where you, you brought in like three or four All American freshmen and then your team is really awesome. And then it looks completely different next year, you know? So it's, yeah. it seems like that's a big part of it too, where it's just, there's not a lot of, you know, you'll, you'll get those upsets where loyal of Chicago or whatever. like, they have a bunch of seniors that shoot three pointers or something and, and they're good, but it's just, it seems a lot more rare. It's just more the teams you see are. Oh, they got three five star freshmen and now, now they're freaking awesome.
0: Yeah. No, uh,
1: that's very true. Uh, from my uh, layman's point of view. Um, we do, I forgot to mention this at the top, David. We have some, uh, some, some news here. I just thought it was interesting. So you probably saw this Colorado and Missouri. So they have agreed in principle to a home and home series in football. So it'll be 2025, which seems like forever. Um, At Colorado, and then 2030, which definitely seems like forever from now, uh, at Mizzou. So, basically, the the, the 2030 game will be the 40th anniversary of the fifth down game that was in Columbia. So, when the extra down uh, allowed the Buffaloes to score the winning touchdown in what became their national championship season. So, uh, that was kind of a little interesting tidbit I thought I'd throw out there. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, I mean... That's the thing. Uh, a
0: thing. A vaguely SEC team versus a vaguely Pac 12 team. I think it'll be great.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got something from Mark. Technical difficulties. Uh, two questions for you. First, I have an idea how Larry Scott can make up the ever widening gap in revenue between Pac 12 schools and other Power 5 conferences and wanted to know your thoughts. Larry can travel the country, uh, winning bar bets by asking random people whether Arizona State has a water polo team or an ice hockey team? Seriously, I was floored to learn on the podcast that ASU has an ice hockey team, but not a water polo team. No one would guess that ever. It makes no sense, and this and thus uh, perfectly emblematic of general Pac-12 strategy. Thoughts?
0: I was stunned as well when I read that live on the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that either. Um, but cool. I knew about the hockey team. Uh, I didn't know that they didn't have a, a water polo team. Uh, Secondly, I saw that you tweeted about having, quote unquote, technical difficulties in recording the podcast with Brandon Huffman, which seemed to involve some nice Hawaiian beers. Cheers. This made me think, if the Pac-12 were a brewery, what type of beer would each Pac-12 school be? Thanks, as always, for the great podcast. Oh, God, that's going to be hard.
0: That one's hard, mostly because um, I am a non-particular drinker, um, and I don't get Like, look, I can tell you the difference between a crappy beer and like a nice or intended to be nice beer, but I just don't care. Like, I I, look, uh, can we all just have a serious conversation about the idea that like alcohol, the reason it's an acquired (laughs) taste is because it doesn't taste good. Like, it's the whole idea is you acquire it for another purpose. It's sociability. It's to get your head bad. It's a wide variety of reasons you drink. It's not because it tastes great like that's not why you're drinking a beer. I mean it tastes fine after a while or it tastes like good after you learn it and you're but it's not like it's it, it's not like a glass of chocolate milk. Like glass of chocolate milk you give that to a 2-year-old they're like hey that's great. Glass of beer you give that to a 2-year-old they put you in prison. <laughs> you know there's just let's all right anyway. Um, I have no, so I mean the,
1: that'd be really hard. I have no idea how we would give it a beer to every school.
0: No, and this one I feel like would cause even more, like, anger and resentment than us uh, assigning dogs because, like, the people who get sensitive about beers will get super sensitive about beers. There's no way that
1: crappy beer would be representing the cougars. Come on.
0: No, I'm this particular IPA (laughs) that tastes like drinking a freaking flower. I'm that one.
1: It's funny, I like um, I like the reds and ambers, and I, I don't. know, I just it's whatever my palate. I don't, but I can't tell you like. Oh, that's more of an oaky. I, I don't know, but I just I know I like those, so I always look for like ambers and stuff and uh, red beers. Um, I'm
0: I'm canceled by beer drinkers because I always like I I like pilsners if I'm drinking something that's light, and I like stouts and that's that's pretty much it and i'll drink everything else but like if i'm actually going to like pick my preference that's probably it yeah and that just does not appeal to people
1: interesting but maybe some maybe people have some ideas out there this this was more we never get them when we ask for well sometimes we get them but specific stuff so if there's like a specific beer you think should be associated with a specific school um like maybe like there'd be some kind of red beer would be with the sun devils you know i don't know maybe something like that but um, or you
0: could drink something with some, uh, you know, high gravity drinkability.
1: Yeah. The other Just, f- the fun thing, I wanted to bring this up to Brandon when we were talking. The cool to,
0: mountain taste of the Rockies. There's, ah, there's lots of good beers out there. I guess like Coors
1: Light would be Colorado, right? So shit, yep. <laughs> I'm not going down this road. Okay. Because <laughs> they're made there. Um, but yeah, if you ever like, you know, if you say something like, you know, Brandon's from the Pacific Northwest, he's up there in Seattle. He's from Southern California, but, you know, he's up in, there in Seattle. If you say something like, yeah, I don't really like the uh, the the craft brew scene from the Pacific Northwest. It just that you know it just doesn't float my boat. I think it's overrated. They'll, they'll flip out at you like, don't you know Portland's got uh, the best blah, blah. You know it's so yeah. I-
0: IP, IPA nerds. They're the. I mean, they're just <laughs> they're one of the worst subsets of society. And I realize that's probably fifty percent of our user or of our listener base. But oh man,
1: I, I mean, I like drinking IPAs and stuff, but I don't like get super passionate just
0: about it. i mean like yeah ipas can be good it's also sometimes like drinking a flower that's been in your armpit for a while like <laughs> it just i'm i'm now I'm, I'm i'm like leaning into throwing fire at these people like I'm, I, we are gonna get some hate mail yeah it's okay
1: that's uh you all are... right
0: uh, yeah thomas hey thomas how are you <laughs> down the rabbit hole with direct tv Mahalo, guys. I know you both are skeptical that DirecTV thinks the Pac-12 network is a pawn of Comcast. Nevertheless, Dave has been eager for me to further explain this theory. I dispute that, Thomas. No No one was eager. (laughs) I know he wanted to see, quote, where the rabbit hole leads. Well, put away your Alice in Wonderland costume, Woods. The backstory is actually more like The Wizard of Oz. As you probably know, the L.A. Dodgers have their own separate TV channel, too, and it isn't carried by DirecTV either. That's because the team decided to partner with Time Warner Cable a few years ago to create their own network and then license it to other providers. DirecTV, however, thought the asking price was too high, so it actually leaked Time Warner's offer to the other cable companies wanting to carry it. You know, Comcast, Charter, Cox, and AT&T UVerse. DirecTV did this hoping the others would band together to get Time Warner to lower the price. Well, guess what? Instead of getting a better deal, Comcast tried to buy all of Time Warner Cable instead. It only failed because another cable company in Southern California, Charter, submitted a higher bid. But the story doesn't end there. The person Charter hired to be president of the Dodger's own channel, Mark Shukin, you know, the current president of the Pac-12 Networks. Comcast has every reason to wait for the Pac-12 Network to sign deals with other TV providers before buying the network itself. That would give it the ability to show more Pac-12 content on its regional sports networks outside of Southern California, but it would also ensure some content would appear in Southern California, too. Either way, don't hold your breath waiting for the Pac-12 network to be on DirecTV. The satellite company's paranoia is so rampant, even Mike Leach would be annoyed. Aloha, Thomas.
1: Thanks, Thomas. I don't know what to say.
0: (laughs) I've I've got nothing. It was great. I laughed. I cried. And we made it through. I uh, know. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yep. That sounds right.
1: Okay. I, I wasn't holding my breath anyway, no matter who.
0: No, yeah. yeah no, for, I, I for don't think anybody's thinking it's on the direct TV on direct TV anytime soon.
1: No, uh, we got Chris. He says one wish uh, by virtue of your promise to produce off season podcasts. And the fact that post Kingsbury, the PAC 12 news has been really uninspiring you have been granted one wish that will come true for each Pac-12 football program. What is your one wish for each school?
0: Um.
1: Oh uh, wow! When you have to ask, we have to do something for every school. It makes it very hard. Um, let's see.
0: Does have to be like oddly specific then to each school, don't we? We just wish they would all win national titles in order. Twelve straight years of Pac-12 titles.
1: That's Larry Scott's wish. He wants the No, he, he
0: wants he wants twelve straight years of every team going six and six.
1: Oh, yeah. what well, it's parody, still maybe. be parody, like if you have one team.
0: Yeah, but that's long haul parody. You want in season parody. Okay. That's if Larry Scott. Let's make this okay,
1: let's make this realistic wishes. So we're not gonna like have the Beavers wish that the Ducks, you know, that uh Phil Knight would drop Oregon. Well, maybe that's a real real wish. I don't know. Um so what like what's a realistic wish for Oregon State it would be uh
0: that, yeah. I mean, Surpri- S- shock shock everybody with bowl eligibility this year.
1: Yeah. I would say that's good. I mean, Jonathan John Smith uh you know pushes this team to, you know, new heights. And, you know, maybe he wins coach of the year for the the turnaround. Yeah, something like that. Some they they become, you know, relevant. Uh, you know, I think that's realistic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what would Oregon wish for? Uh,
0: I mean, like realistic for this year? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Win the Pac-12 North. Win the Pac-12. I mean, they have two top fifteen classes now in back-to-back years.
1: You could even like say playoff, like for Oregon. Even I think winning the Pac-12 is the next step. But like they're that with the two, you know, top fifteen recruiting classes in a row, and this one, you know, top ten yeah maybe all right
0: i mean yeah yeah Uh, justin herbert sure i mean i don't think that's likely or realistic but yeah i think that's it's like on the like very far end of possibility sure
1: Uh, how about uh washington state
0: uh do what you did this year um basically Everyone's going to think you're going six and six or seven and five, and uh, go ten and two, and be in the Pac-12 North uh, uh, race until the last weekend.
1: Yeah, I think uh, yeah, rinse and repeat for what they were able to do. I think get close to what you did last year. Uh, it's pretty special. Uh, Washington win a national title. Yeah, it's got to be national title or bust, right? Like that's you've made the playoff. I mean,
0: play, playoff. I think is is I, I think playoff is is completely on the table and why not you've got you'll actually have a real quarterback who can throw a football now i mean because jake browning is coming back for that six years and we've heard great things about his steroid program um so you'll be in good shape
1: yeah i like that um okay so how about cal
0: um
1: wish for an offense i think
0: yeah just wish for just wish for somebody who's not going to throw the ball to the other teams (laughs) Because if you do that, you might win nine games.
1: Yeah. I think no, I mean, yeah, having an offense, like this is a legit defense. The the recruiting class is defensive heavy. Um, I think the defense is still gonna be really good. So yeah, having an offense would be pretty special. Um Stanford, what what's uh what's Mr. Shaw gonna root for?
0: Uh trap Tavita Pritchard under something heavy and hire a new (laughs) offensive coordinator. (laughs)
1: I like it. Um yeah, I think they're gonna they're gonna wish for like a magical fullback to come back and just bowl people over for whoever the running back is. Or yeah. I, I they <laughs> they need
0: they need some more imagination in their offensive system because it is just I think you can still be that big power offense, but you need some variation. You need to not just be predictable. And I thought they were way too predictable for like half the season last year. So Figured some way around that. But I mean, if you're talking about results, I think they still have the talent in program. I think they're going to have to replace some stuff on at at receiver that you can see them being good again next year. But I I think they need to figure some stuff out offensively. Um, So I I I think this year wish for something internal, you know, something that's going to build for success. I think this is maybe a little bit of a rebuilding year. Um, and then get back to being elite Stanford next year.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, let's go. Uh, let's go to the. Uh, how about Utah?
0: Mm. Win the Pac-12.
1: Yeah, I think that. I think that's the goal. I think winning. The, you know, winning the South last year was was great. Um, I think just being, you know, having a consistent. And potent offense. I think if you do that, I think a defense is going to play well. I think, you know, you get a lot of good line play, but we've just seen these up and down some of the games and, you know, there's sometimes it's injuries, but if they're like consistently good on offense to, you know, up to the talent level, I think they're going to be, they can be really good. And I think winning the PAC 12 is, is a legitimate goal. uh, After winning the South last year.
0: Yeah. Agreed.
1: Uh, Colorado.
0: Uh, ooh. be a bowl team this year
1: yeah get to the bowl i'm gonna say Let's get to wish, a
0: bowl in the coach's first year and build some recruiting momentum
1: i'm gonna say wish to finish in the middle of the pac 12 south like enough of the first or last sort of thing like be, you know be like seven and five and, and finish like fourth or third or fourth in the pac 12 south just and then build up you know because it was this weird you know i guess there was only one like real feast, there was a lot of famine, but there was a great feast, you know, that one year. Um, You'd like to just see sort of building up. So you get a new coach in, build up, you know, maybe like David said, make a bowl, and then kind of progress and, and get better as opposed to this kind of the wild swings we've seen before. Yep. Herm and ASU. Uh,
0: Win the South? Is that is that realistic? I mean, I think they lose is. a lot from this last year, didn't they?
1: They do, but we can't, you know... I'm not going to sell.
0: No, we actually can't say anything definitively until we talk to Chris Cartman. Right. uh, (laughs) You're unavailable for comment on Herm Edwards and, and the Sun Devils until we hear from the true guru.
1: (laughs) I wish to talk to Chris. Um, There'd be a couple, I think there was a couple staff turnovers, but uh, no, I I think, I mean, they're they're recruiting pretty well. I think, you know, it's somewhat realistic. Uh, It's not like, you know, we don't know what USC is going to be. Utah won it, but it was, you know, on uh, wasn't on the you know most stable footing last year, so I think it's somewhat realistic. Yeah. Uh, how about Arizona? Mm. Like a healthy Khalil Tate, hundred percent. Khalil Tate. The
0: defense. The defense is going to be another year older, a little bit more experienced, a little bit better. They could surprise. I, I don't. I, I don't think there's. Is there a clear favorite in the South for you next year?
1: Not in my mind right now. Um, I mean, it, I'll probably lean towards Utah again, but.
0: Yeah, I, I it, it could be one of those weird years where Arizona could, because that defense is gelling and getting a little bit older and they were getting pretty good by the end of the year, you could see them making a little bit of a jump. Um, I don't know if I'd bank on it, but maybe a slightly healthier Khalil Tate. Maybe they figure out how to use them a little bit better. I could see that. All right, so why don't we say the South? They win the South. Okay. That's a wish for
1: them. Uh we I think we just have the LA schools left, right? Uh I don't know. Yeah.
0: Uh U- UCLA figures out how to recruit. Apparently, that's a difficult thing.
1: Um, <laughs> USC's got a wish for an offensive coordinator, so that's you know, they still need that.
0: Who knew it was difficult to recruit at UCLA?
1: I didn't know. It didn't. That's what that's the one thing where you're always like, if you bring in a coach like that, you're like, that's combined with the talent you could get at ucla that's the given it's the
0: given (laughs) it's the constant it's the constant around which the formula is built
1: right so you don't take you you don't take that out
0: (laughs) no you don't make that a variable because then you're then your formula is meaningless
1: (laughs) Uh, crazy yeah yeah and I think USC can score if they get a good offensive coordinator. So they'd have to wish for that.
0: Yeah, and if uh, if that offensive coordinator opens up the competition and allows their best quarterback to play,
1: <laughs> that would also be good. I'm still – yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like one of the last like JT Daniels You're guys out there. You're a holdout. You're a holdout. I'm a holdout. Both, everyone's kind of left. Uh, left I, I was
0: never really on it. I was never really on it, but that's more just from my uh, general hatred yeah. towards everything and everyone <laughs> – Nice. All right. Ready for Alex? Sure. Transfers. Quick question, boys. What are your thoughts on all these transfers? More evident because of the transfer portal. Good thing for the game. We give high school kids a tough time because they transfer from one school to another, then another. Is it hitting college more now? Thanks for keeping the podcast alive during the offseason, Alex from Pasadena. I don't think there's more. It doesn't feel like more to me, but maybe it is.
1: I think think? it's a little more, but it's definitely more publicized and having like this mysterious transfer portal out there. I think the grad, the grad stuff has certainly contributed because there was always a deterrent. You know, it's like, I don't want to go sit for two years or whatever. Like, Hey man, you graduate from college, uh, and you can go wherever you want that. That was a, you know, I think, and it's helped people, you know, you've seen guys transfer with like two years of eligibility. Uh, it's kudos to those guys. Like you graduate in three and a half years or something and then go play two years somewhere else. That's awesome. Um, but I think you're seeing a little bit more now. And then like the the Blake Barnett's of the world, like we were just talking about uh, Devin monster, like you're seeing some guys that can get out. There's a, seems to be other new ways to sort of get out of sitting out. Um, and then certainly with the quarterback trend, it's just, you know, it's just not a position where you can go and be part of a rotation most of the time. So uh, I think you're seeing a lot. I, I think you're seeing, There's probably, you know, a few more that are happening, but it's a lot more, um, I think it's more evident, like you said, because of the transfer portal.
0: Yeah, and I would say largely good thing for the game. Uh, It gets, I think it gets more of these talented guys on the field earlier in their careers, uh, especially at quarterback. It does make it more challenging, I think, for football staffs. Like, I think it does have to, it does change your strategy, especially in respect to recruiting quarterbacks. I remember back in the day, the rule was always, You take one and exactly one every year, and that's it. Um, And now I think you'll see more and more schools take multiple quarterbacks in a year. And obviously that happened on occasion in the past, but I think that's going to happen more and more, especially because there's going to be a lot of good ones on the transfer market, and we know how much coaches like experience. Um, So I I, I think it's going to change maybe some particulars of how you recruit maybe you don't fill up on pure high school recruits. Um, you know, you fill up to like 20 or 22 and then you see what the transfer market is looking like heading into February. Um, I think it could change some things like that, but, um, I think that makes it more interesting. Um, college football obviously doesn't have the problem that, that college basketball does, which is kids being able to leave school for an entirely different thing. Um, the NFL or the, the NBA in that case, uh, very quickly. Uh, college they're in for three years no matter what so they have to find a place where they can play so I think the end result is it gets more players on the field at different places and uh, makes it probably a more competitive game from top to bottom when you start at the you know the low FPS level all the up to the top I mean obviously the top four teams are going to be the same every year as we're quickly realizing but uh, everyone below that can be kind of uh, competitive with each other which is kind of cool
1: yeah and I, I think it's a good thing for the game and it's anything that's good for the players, I'm um, for, I know there'll be some coaches or administrators or whatever they're complaining about. It's like, you know, if any one of us when we're in college wanted to leave and go somewhere else, we could do that, you know, and we're, we've put so much restrictions on them. So I don't have an issue. Uh, I think it's good for players. It might, you know, it might hurt the game a little bit down the road. I, it's hard to say if it keeps getting worse and worse, but uh, I agree with you, Dave. I think, you know, you'll get more good players on the, on the field and, um, I'm like, like the UC Davis running back that came down to UCLA. Joshua Kelly, Josh, I yeah, mean, who almost, who
0: almost went pro
1: <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh,
0: uh-huh. you know, cause he had such a good year. He almost went pro. So that's, that's, that's one of those things that can happen. I think in uh, a more transfer friendly, uh, friendly system. Yeah, you that, can get a guy who can, you know, suddenly make an impact at the FBS level when nobody thought of him as a prospect at high school.
1: And he wasn't even like killing it at UC Davis, right? Like he just, no, no, you
0: know, just. You know, uh, obviously, UCOI saw some things that liked in him, but no, he was a walk on transfer.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it helps good coaches, too, because you have to evaluate these other guys now also. And so you can like if you can find a guy like that, and you're like, you know, I think he's going to be really good. And you bring him in. It's either a waste of a scholarship or he's really good. And then, you know, you go from there. Uh, let's see this is from Kevin recruiting comma playoffs. First off. May I, okay, this is from January 11th, so I'm not sure what game he's talking about. You might remember he said, "May I compliment Dave, who channeled his inner Bill Walton on a great article on 247 about the game Thursday night?" It was God
0: no, God no, twelve days ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was absurdist heaven, especially as Mister Absurd himself was calling the game. So I assume it was a UCLA basketball game that Bill Walton was calling, or maybe it wasn't. I don't
0: okay. know. Okay, I, I remember the I remember the story. All right. Okay, I'm right there.
1: Okay, uh, do you, what game was that? Do you know or?
0: I don't remember who was playing. I just remember writing a story. Okay, that's all I got.
1: Now this is good because we've already had our guest on. <laughs> so when you have your recruiting guest on, is it possible to do <laughs> a little primer on the rating process? <laughs> next
0: week when we talk to Greg Biggins, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> or Blair, whoever we're getting on next
1: week. Yeah. He's just he said he's just curious about uh, aspects. Now, I'm such- gonna. Oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, let's ju- let's just let's just uh, should we save it? Let's yeah let's just say this i'm putting a star in it so okay. we'll hopefully next week
1: all right now we're getting these are kind of old so i don't know how many more you want to do but
0: i think we're done okay these look really
1: old. okay sorry about that everyone but hopefully you know if you said there a good one that we just didn't get to there was only a few left i don't think there was that many but um i think we're a good two hours in already so we're pretty close now nah, hour 45 not too bad uh that's good stuff brandon is like a freaking encyclopedia and uh they're really good. When you talk to people like that, like you know, when I talk to like a Bruce Feldman, or you talk, and they're like able to talk about, oh yeah, that was this. He was the strength coach for Northern Kentucky, and he went to black. And you're like, how the heck? Well, do you especially that when
0: when we're talking to each other, and like I I <laughs> like I lose the ability to like remember more than a hundred English words. You can remember the name of absolutely nobody. Like, what are? <laughs> why are people listening to this?
1: <laughs> it's entertainment, David. <laughs> I but, guess, but there's there's certain jobs. You're
0: just listening to two dudes whose like brains are melting at the end of a day. That's all. <laughs> that's all that's going on
1: here. But like, if we're covering a team, it's very different. Covering a single team, and you can usually keep a lot of that stuff in your head. And it's not it's not always easy, but you you, you can get by. But if you're doing like you're covering college football on a national level, if you're doing you know college basketball that way, or you're Brandon Huffman. Talk about recruits. And when you're saying like, Oh, they recruited out of this high school last year. It's like, you remember which school the guy went to, who recruited them hardest from which different schools. And then people transferring stuff. There's a lot to remember. And, and those guys can just kind of rattle them off from all over the country. And then you go well, like they, what you go to all star yeah. game and they like know who everyone is. And I'm like, I'm trying to find the dudes that USC is interested in and remember the like five guys or something. And they know like everybody there. It's crazy.
0: I don't remember people I've had, like, conversations in person with. Like, I'm like, oh, you're who again? Like, I just, uh, maybe it's facial blindness. I don't know. But I also, like, if you ask me a detail about a football game that we talked about on this show that I watched last season, I will have no idea. <laughs> and there are people who are like, oh, yeah, that was 1987 Monday Night Football game on September 12th. Uh, yeah, they kicked that field goal. And I'm like, I I don't even know what teams UCLA played last year. And I watched every game.
1: <laughs> it is hard. It's just, I eh. do that too. Even with like in the USC, like there'll be other USC podcasts and they'll like, yeah, so you remember this game, 2014, Cody Kessler did this. And I'm like, dude, I no idea. Like, oh, oh yeah, he was a quarterback that year, but I don't remember all the specifics of all those games. And it's crazy, but uh, I mean, it's not. Like I have ever-
0: to, when I write my season previews every year, I have to like go back and like read the stuff I wrote the previous year, which is first an awful experience. Never <laughs> read anything you write. Second, I do that because I I, I actually cannot I, I not only can't remember enough to like look at a like I can't remember the games at all. So then I consult a box score and I'm like, oh, this doesn't tell me anything. I can't even remember the narrative of this game. I have no recollection that any of this actually happened. So then I have to go back and read what I wrote about the game to see how I felt about it. To then write my preview with the proper tone so I at least maintain some semblance of consistency for the poor people on Bro who who read what I write. Like it's, it's a very, very dark time for me.
1: This is a commercial year. for our, our work out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a commercial for my memory. It's not that
1: mine's pretty bad. I I think sometimes though, like if you go back and read, uh, okay, I'll remember that. But if you try to recall, like, oh, don't you remember the UNLV game? But I'm like, not really. Okay. And if you kind of like, oh yeah, they came back in the fourth quarter. Okay. I kind of remember that now, but it takes, it takes some jarring, you know, it's like, you don't really, it's not really, And some people can just kind of pick it off. It just, it's right, right there for them.
0: Every memory from more than four weeks ago is like waking up hungover after a night <laughs> you blacked out for me. Like, I'll remember flashes like, oh, yeah, that experience was interesting. But then no context for it before or after. Nice. Just, yeah, just, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. Well, that's
1: a good way to end it, Dave, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least we're having fun, hopefully. Well, so. we are
0: entering the off-season, as you can tell, on yeah. this podcast.
1: Uh, so the plan is next week we'll get Greg Biggins on. We'll talk Pac-12 South. So if you have any specific questions for him, I don't think we've actually asked Greg yet, but we'll assume he'll do it, right? He'll do it. <laughs> if not, we'll get Blair. <laughs> I don't think. Blair is an a,
0: organized show and uh, polite people. That's who we are. Yeah,
1: and they'll they'll say yes. They, they like us. Um. All right. But yeah, so we'll do Pac-12 South uh, recruiting next week. Any specific questions for a recruiting expert, we could you could feel free to send them in and uh, we'll do that. We'll that, probably
0: forget to ask them during the segment and then we'll get to them afterwards and then say sorry, but please send them in.
1: Right. I'll try to look at it. But we probably won't. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll. Dave started that one. So we'll go back and uh, it was about the ranking. So we'll try to get Greg or whoever to talk about that. Um, all right. Well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. We are the podcast of champions. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will talk to you next time.